0: So this semester we are covering the parables of Jesus. And if you've been with us, you know that the kind of the theme that we're operating from is that the parables are surprising stories about the king and his kingdom. Now, we opened up with Psalm 13, which is a wonderful psalm. How long, O Lord? It is a, a cry of lament. One of the things that is true of biblical laments is their honest cries, and they're directed toward God. Um, Then we sang a version of Psalm 2. I don't know if you knew that we sang Psalm 2, but Psalm 2, um, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. That's a very interesting line. I don't know if you know what that is referring to, but it's pretty cool because Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm that was used when the king of Israel would be crowned. And the beginning of Psalm 2 says... The Lord said to my Lord. So the king is referring to another king who is to come. It is one of the clearest pictures of what the Jews hoped for with the messianic king. The king who would be the true king of kings. Who would come from the lineage of David. And it talks about the reign of this king being about justice, making all things right, what the Jews understood to be shalom, which is not just peace, hope everything's fine in your world, it is the right rule of God in all of life. And as Madison mentioned, you know, this is a day when even for the Belmont community, there's a vivid, ugly reminder that not all is right. And yet the the psalm or the parable we're doing tonight is fascinating because it really is a, is a parable that provokes cries of not fair. Now, if you're a parent like me and you have kids, you hear not fair a lot. Not fair a lot. And um, it bothers me to such a, a great extent that I try everything I can to make things as perfectly fair as I can. Uh, but there is just no way to completely, perfectly divide up uh, a piece of white chocolate into three equal <laughs> I try my best, but you can't do it. There's no way that I can, um, when I have two boys going to high school, each of whom wants to ride shotgun in the space of five days, somebody's always going to get an extra turn, unless I make both of them sit in the back seat one day. So there are all these sorts of things, and I come by this, you know, longing to have everything be just fair, honestly. My parents certainly try to do this. I know, you know, my mom and dad, the, one of the things that they, like, absolutely committed to, was to spend the exact same amount of money on each of the kids for Christmas. Now, to the point where literally you would get in your stocking a check uh, or cash down to the penny of the balance to make sure it was absolutely even. And it didn't really matter that they'd spent equal amount of money because you know what happened when we came uh, into the living room on Christmas morning. Who had the most boxes and who had the biggest boxes? (laughs) And it didn't really matter if my mom could say, but look, we spent the exact same amount of money on each one of you, down to the penny, and here's your $3.53, you know, to make it just even, it didn't matter. Unfair. But there's something, you know, more profound than just sort of silly examples of not fair. We see things going on in our world. We see, you know, another unarmed black man killed, and I don't want to get into what was going on and the full story. The fact is, crappy stuff happens all the time. And we're profoundly reminded again that things are broken. And here Jesus tells a parable that makes you go, that doesn't seem fair. And yet I think as we enter into the midst of this parable, we're going to find out that what this parable is teaching us about the king and about his kingdom actually is the thing that could give us the most profound hope that he will make all things right one day. The king, the king's character is everything for life in the kingdom. And this is a parable about the kingdom of our God and about his character. So let's read it together. Or actually, follow along with me. I'll read it. It's in Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to that. It's Matthew chapter 20. And it starts at verse 1. Jesus said this, for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which is the daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, the the full wage for a day's work. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master replied to one of them, "'Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity?' So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these parables that reveal your character. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see who you are, even as this parable reveals you. And in so doing, may we come to be awed and humbled, made more bold and more hopeful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is an interesting parable, isn't it? It certainly provoked um, questions of fairness, even within the parable, would have provoked those kinds of questions from the people in the first century, and it does, even on the surface here, it raises questions of unfairness, doesn't it? And it's a pretty interesting thing, because it seems that the employer, the master, plays favorites, doesn't reward people fairly. If there's one thing that most people demand from God, it's that he be fair. And yet, Jesus here tells us a parable that, you know, a lot of you, business majors, music business majors, economics, entrepreneurs, we've got a lot of people that are like, whoa, could you run a business like this? Um, what's going on here? What is Jesus? teaching us. I think the way to get at the the heart of this parable is really to look at three questions that it provokes. Parables really should provoke questions. And if anything, I can teach you about how to read the Bible, it would be this. Be curious. Ask questions. When scripture provokes questions, don't run by it too quickly. Sit in it for a little bit. And the first question is, why does the vineyard owner, the master, keep going back to get more workers. I mean, Jesus seems to want to make this point really clearly. He hires some workers at the beginning of the day, like you would normally do, but then he goes back at the third hour, and the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, and even the eleventh hour. Five times he goes. And you would either have to conclude that the master is a really poor estimate or estimator of the work that needs to be done, or he's trying to say something else. It's one of those things that it's so odd that you either have to conclude, like, he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, he's not able to look at his vineyard and think, I need people, more people than I hired at first. It's either that or something else. I mean, it'd be one thing if he went at the beginning of the day and hired some people and then he got kind of at lunchtime, he's like, you know, we're not really making very good progress, I need to go get a few more people. But it doesn't. And he hires people at the 11th hour. Almost at the very end of the working day, when he can basically get no work out of them at all. Why? What's going on? And I think one of the keys to understanding what's going on is this little detail about the people, the men, being in the marketplace, standing around, idle. There's a map code near my house where you can observe this phenomenon of men standing there hoping that they'll get picked up to go work for the day. And it's a little awkward, actually, when you pull up there, like for gas in the morning, and you see the people there hoping to get work so that they can go home, tell their families that they're able to find work that day. It's particularly awkward if you go around 11 o'clock and they're still standing there hoping to get work. But by 11 o'clock, if they're still there, they're probably not getting work. And they're probably going to have to go home and tell their families, I wasn't able to find work today. That's the story. That's the picture going here. This was typical in a Jewish village that there would be an area in the marketplace where all those who wanted to work for the day would go. And they would hang out, and they would hope that somebody would come by and give them gainful employment so that they could feed their families and take care of what needed to be taken care of. And it's pretty fascinating that the master keeps going back again and again and again. You see, waiting there in the marketplace, particularly, you know, in the Middle East, where it's not cool, it's hot, and they're waiting there all day. It's humiliating. And yet they wait there. They wait there, even to the 11th hour is pretty fascinating. Why? Why? By midday, it would seem that all hope is lost and that they are going to have to return to their families, and yet they stay. And I think there's something really powerful here. I think the only right conclusion is the master doesn't hire them because he needs them. He doesn't really even get any work out of the people that he hires for an hour. But what you're seeing revealed is his compassion and his care to even guard the dignity of people who otherwise would have to go home and tell their families that they were not able to find work. It's one thing to give people a handout. It's a whole other thing to dignify them by giving them employment. And that's what he does. And I think what's really interesting is the last guys really don't contribute very much. They couldn't possibly contribute very much. They only maybe work for an hour. Actually, it even says about the 11th hour. So maybe it it wasn't even a whole hour. And yet they get paid the same amount. The master, get this, the master pays them for a full day's work, even though they don't contribute very much to him at all. And I would say that I think what you see here is an amazing picture of the grace of God. And and I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is that we're never going to understand the astonishing grace of God until we see that it doesn't come because we contribute so much to his team. We don't contribute value. We don't add value to his team. He doesn't even really need us. But he brings us in. He even gives us good, dignifying work to do. Sets us actually back to work the kind of work that he created mankind to do. He created mankind not just to sit around and gaze up into his eyes but to take the cultivated part of the creation, the garden, and push it out into all areas of the world and of the cosmos. Adam and Eve were called to be fruitful and multiply and take all of the cultivated part of creation and push it out, bringing out all of the God-glorifying potential that he built into his world. Remember I said these parables are surprising stories about the king and his kingdom. And I hope that you'll understand that the kingdom is not just about souls floating up to live in heaven forever and ever. The kingdom of God is a physical, redeemed, restored place. At the end of the book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth come down. And we are going to work forever bringing out all the God-glorifying potential that he built into his creation. And that's what he's inviting us to do. He invites us into his kingdom, not because he needs us, but because he wants to dignify us and give us grace and mercy. Notice what the owner says to each group of men he hires. He tells them that he will be, literally in the Greek it says that he will be just with them. Just with them. He's going to be just. The last group, he actually doesn't even Tell them what he's going to pay them. And they go with him anyway. Do you notice that? The 11th hour workers never get told what they're going to earn. Why do they go with him? And this is a profound point you need to see. It's because the vineyard owner has revealed his character. Every time he shows up to hire more people that he doesn't need, he's demonstrating his mercy and his compassion. And his commitment to honor and dignify people who actually don't deserve it and can't earn it. The 11th hour guys don't even have a chance to really earn what they're paid. But he gives it to them anyway. And every time he shows up, it raises and encourages their hope because it's revealing the character, the compassionate character Why hire men to work an hour before the day is done? The point is the owner is granting grace to those who have lost their hope that they could ever get what they need or earn what they need. I mean, it's pretty amazing that they stay till the end of the day. Why are there still workers there at the 11th hour? The only reason there can be workers there is because of the character of the employer of the vineyard owner and what he's demonstrated over and over and over. It encourages them to hold on. In the gospel, you see, the character of God is demonstrated in such a way that he invites us to go with him. The gospel is the supreme revelation, unveiling of the character of God. And everything about God revealed in the gospel gives us reason to trust Him. The gospel, the gospel, you see, doesn't just get you a get out of hell free card. It puts you to work. Now, I know maybe for some of you who come from church backgrounds where you've heard that: save to serve. I'm not saying that. Because a lot of people, this has kind of been twisted. For them, like the only reason God saves you is so that you can go out and work for Him and try to, you know, evangelize people and get another notch in your belt. And if you can evangelize people, then you can feel good about yourself and your relationship with God. Not talking about that, because notice, this is not people who work and get paid a wage because they deserve it because of the work they've done. The picture here is people get paid so much more than they deserve. That's that's the point. It's a picture of grace, not about earning anything. And then there's a shock at the end of the parable. I don't know if this probably didn't strike you, because if you don't understand the first century culture, verse 8 wouldn't really bother you. But verse 8 says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, or his estate manager... Now, what's interesting is, you don't know that there's a foreman until verse 8. Now, why is that that important to note? Well, farmers in the first century in the Middle East were like gentlemen landowners. What's really bizarre about this story, if there's a foreman, why in the world is the rich vineyard owner tramping into the village over and over and over again to hire people. If he has an estate manager, if he has a foreman, that's the foreman's job. And so when you get to verse 8 and you see there's a foreman, it sort of amps up even more the astonishing character of the master. Because not only does he hire people who can't really contribute much to him at all, but he himself personally goes And delivers compassionate mercy and care. Compassionate mercy is best delivered in person. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the gospel, the good news, where God takes on human flesh and dwells with his people and loves them from up close. And that's the picture you get here. And that's a detail that when it pops up in verse 8, everybody may be like, whoa, wait, there's a foreman? Why wasn't the foreman doing this? Even more amazing, not only does the vineyard owner show compassion, but he does it in person. And then there's the second shock. He orders the manager to pay all the workers the wage. The wage. The denarius, which is the daily living wage paid to all the workers. And they all get paid it. But then... He makes the manager pay them in reverse order to which they were earned. Now, that's weird. Why does he do that? Well, it's because he wants the people who were hired at the beginning of the day to realize how much he's paying the people that got hired at the 11th hour. There's no other way you can read this parable. He wants everybody to know what everybody else is getting paid. If he paid the first people first their denarius, the people that worked all day, if he pays them what they had agreed upon, they're going to leave and everything's fine. He deliberately makes them mad. He deliberately pushes them into thinking that he's being unfair. Deliberately. You see that, right? He goes out of his way to make sure that the first workers see what the 11th hour workers are getting paid. And what does it do to them initially? Initially, it makes them think, man, if these guys got a full denarius, then we're obviously going to get more because we worked more than they did. But the wage is not based upon how much you work. In the kingdom of God, the wage is based upon his grace and everybody gets grace lavished upon them. And that's what the first hour workers in particular need to see. Kenneth Bailey, who's a a great uh, scholar of the parables and of the New Testament, says this, equal pay for equal work is a centuries-old understanding of justice, but that's not the issue here. This parable presents the overpaid, not the underpaid. The story focuses on an equation filled with amazing grace, which is resented by those who feel that they have earned their way to more. The complaint is from the justly paid who cannot tolerate grace. You've made them equal to us, they shout angrily, like the older son complaining to his father about the grace given freely to the prodigal. seems that Jesus is regularly trying to make this point. And you have to ask, why is he making this point? Well, let's look at how he responds to their complaints. The master basically says this. I'm free to do what I want with what is mine. If I choose to pay these men what I want, that's no concern of yours. Here's the point. The gospel should humble us because God is under no compulsion to save anyone. You don't understand the kingdom of God until you understand that salvation is a gift not a wage. The Bible talks about wages. Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin, it says, are death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And it seems that Jesus makes that point over and over and over again. Salvation is a gift, not a wage. The Master has every right to say, Do you guys think you're the only ones who bore the heat of the day? I went back to the marketplace over and over and over again. I could have sent my foreman, but I didn't. I went myself. Where was I? Where was I while you were working? I was trudging back and forth. You think I was enjoying a little siesta in the shade? No. I was demonstrating my costly love. Because that's exactly what it is. He pays money to people he doesn't need to pay. Lavishes grace on them. He says to these people, in effect, you wanted to be richer at the end of the day. You know what I wanted to be at the end of the day? Poorer. I gave away money that I didn't have to give so that people would be glorified and dignified and have what they need. And then the story stops. You know why the story stops? Because parables have a way of saying, who are you? How will you respond? It's very much like the prodigal son parable, where the father invites the older son, who's really ticked off that the father is so gracious, and it leaves you hanging. Does the older son rejoice in his father's mercy? Or is he going to stay outside of the party and grumble and complain? And this one does. The same. Who do the full-day workers represent? Now, some people say, oh, well, it's the Pharisees. I think, I think it's the disciples who've been walking with him for a while. Because here's the thing: you are more vulnerable to this temptation of thinking you deserve more the longer you've been walking with Jesus. And for a lot of you, you've walked with Jesus for a long time. I know, a lot of you have grown up in the church. You've known Jesus for a long time. But the question is, are you still astonished by grace? And are you still blown away by the compassionate, personal, in-person, sacrificial mercy of the Father? You see, ultimately, there's a question about, can you celebrate God's grace For the undeserving. And if you have a problem with that, well, here's the big problem you're cutting the branch that you're standing on. If you have a problem with God giving grace to the undeserving, watch out because you're undermining your whole basis for being, right? Those who follow Jesus, those who want to be part of his kingdom, should always celebrate God's grace is grace and love for the undeserving because that's your only hope. See, ultimately, this parable is about Jesus and his costly love. Jesus is describing his own ministry in this parable because Jesus is not like the typical Middle Eastern gentleman farmer who sends his estate manager to do the work. Jesus is the one who takes on human flesh, leaves the Father's throne, and comes and dwells among us. The Gospel of John says he tabernacles with us. Or as a friend of mine used to to like to say, uh, he took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He's here with us experiencing the brokenness and the frustration. Jesus is God incarnate whose compassion leads him to become poor, And to come to the poor, all of us, and make us rich by giving everything he has. There's this old song Joan Osborne used to sing. What if God was one of us? You know that song? Maybe you're not old enough to know that song. It's a fascinating song. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. The gospel replies to that question. says he has become one of us but not just to ride on the bus and empathize with us in our mercy. He came to make himself poor so that he might make us rich. The master in the parable pays his own money, money he didn't have to, to give dignity and compassion to those who couldn't possibly earn it. And Jesus is saying that your place in the kingdom is all about grace. All about grace. But it's hard sometimes to remember that. Martin Luther put it so well. He said some crazy things, but he said some great things. And nobody really gets kind of the energy and the fire of the gospel quite like Martin Luther. He was writing to a, uh, to a friend of his and near the end of his life, and he wrote this. He said, It is exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. For even though we are now in faith, in other words, we realize that our relationship with God has to be through faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, well, after all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take this into account. We even want to haggle with God to make him regard our life, but it cannot be done. With men you may boast. I've done the best I could toward everyone, and if anything's lacking, I will still try to make recompense. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. But let anyone try this, and he will see, she will see, how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man or a woman who all their life has been mired in their works of righteousness to pull themselves up out of it and with all of their heart rise up through faith in the one mediator, Jesus. And I love this part. He says, I myself have been preaching and cultivating it through reading and writing for almost 20 years. And still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God so that I may contribute something, so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet I know that this is what I should and must do. I love his openness and vulnerability there. He's like, like he's the one, you know, we're going to celebrate next year, October 31st, 1517, The 95 Theses nailed on the church door in Wittenberg. We're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the rediscovery of the gospel at the time of the Reformation. And yet Martin Luther, the man who God used to sort of bring back the truth of the gospel as a free gift of grace, says that I've been preaching and teaching the gospel for 20 years, writing about it, cultivating it, and I still don't get it. I still struggle to remember it. Well, let's give you a couple takeaways from tonight. As I said, the longer you've walked with Jesus, the more you can be tempted to feel entitled. You've got to own that. Jesus tells this story to remind us that everything we have is a gift, not a wage. Lose sight of that, and we're in deep weeds. Jesus owes no one salvation No matter how long you've served him, salvation is a free and a gracious gift, and that's it. But not only is that an important message for you to hear if you've walked with Jesus for a long time, it's also hope for those here tonight who feel they don't deserve his grace. Because here's the good news. You don't deserve his grace. You don't. You never did, you never can, and you never will. So cheer up. Quit trying to impress God. It can't be done. It can't be done before you come to Him in faith, and it can't be done after you've come to Him in faith. Your relationship with Him is through Christ. And in Christ, you have the righteousness of God credited to your account. Like, what more do you think you need to earn? What more do you think you need to earn? Actually, trying to earn more and pad your account is offensive to Jesus because it's saying you didn't really do enough. So cheer up. Quit trying to impress God and live out of the riches that he's lavished upon you. And if you don't know what that's about, cheer up and come to Jesus. It's the 11th hour. doesn't matter. You'll be fully welcomed into his heart given everything you need to look him in the face and have him look at you, smile at you. In the gospel, God reveals his character, right? Remember, why do the workers stay all day waiting for the master return? It's because he's shown his compassion over and over and over again. And then he shows his character even more powerfully in paying a full wage, to everyone, and reversing the order so that even those who feel like they'd earned their full wage realize that the Father is compassionate on those who can't earn it. He wants everybody, from the first-hour workers to the last-hour workers, to see His character revealed. But of course, God shows His character most clearly on the cross because there the Father pays our debt by giving his son Jesus, and gives us a treasure we could never earn at the cost of his own dear son. And that's what gives us hope and encouragement to persevere. I mean, how will you persevere in following a God who does perplexing things? Because that's what Jesus is revealing here. The Father does perplexing things. But usually the perplexing things are to draw your attention to the cross and to the way the kingdom of grace is upside down to anything else that you'll know. God does perplexing things. You know, we live in a world that makes us cry over and over and over again, how long, O Lord? And how do you persevere? How do you go on? There's a guy named John Frames, one of the great theologians of the 20th century. He says, if you come to the Bible looking for an answer to the problem of evil to the problem of suffering, the kind of answer that won't lead to more questions, the kind of answer that will fully satisfy. If you come to the Bible looking for that kind of answer, I have to tell you, you won't find it. But if you come to the Bible looking for the kind of answer that gives you hope to carry on and to persevere, the Bible gives that, and it gives it abundantly. And the way it gives it abundantly is by helping turn your why questions into who questions. Because ultimately, this is a parable that should help you go from why does he do that to who loves like that? Who loves like that? And once you begin to have your why questions turn into who questions, and you begin to be astonished at the gracious character, it actually helps you to trust him. It does. At the heart of the reason that you can persevere in hope, even in the midst of the brokenness and the unjustness, is the character of God revealed in the gospel. He's not a cruel tyrant who doesn't care about justice. He's a God of mercy. Yes, he often perplexes. The most perplexing thing he does is gives grace to people who don't deserve it even at the cost of his own son. And that gives us hope to carry on because surely the one who gave his own son can be trusted to make all things right one day. So while this seems like a parable that challenges the idea that God is fair, it actually reveals his character as caring so much more than even we do. And that gives us hope that the God who gave his only son will surely follow through on his promise to make all things right one day. You see that? The character of God is revealed in the gospel, and he can be trusted. Let's pray together.